My name is Luke Brederton, and this is the Listen, Organise, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organising in democratic politics. In this second series, I'm exploring key figures, texts and ideas that organisers and leaders have turned to again and again to inspire shared action and explain the meaning, purpose and character of democratic politics. This is the second of a two-part episode discussing the work of Saul Alinsky and the different traditions and influences that shaped his vision of community organising. Here I talk to Mike Miller. Mike started out in politics as part of the early stirrings of the student movement in UC Berkeley. And from there he got involved in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC, doing work in Mississippi, but mostly organising support for SNCC on the West Coast. That led him to working with Cesar Chavez as part of the farm worker movement. And then coming off all of that, he ends up as a community organiser in San Francisco, his hometown, where he organises for many decades until his retirement. His move from SNCC to organising in the Bay Area was catalyzed by actually meeting Saul Alinsky, who recruited him to work with the Industrial Areas Foundation for a while. So I'm going to talk to Mike about his relationship with Alinsky and what it was like to work with him and what he thinks was Alinsky's understanding of democracy. Along the way, he draws some contrasts between the different kinds of organising that he's been involved in over the years. So, uh, Mike, welcome to the Listen, Organise, Act podcast. Thanks so much for, for talking to me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm pleased to be with you. Been reading your stuff for a long time, and I have fond memories of when I gave you my San Francisco tour. Indeed. <laughs> it was a joy well, to be able to hang out. That must be, what, four or five years ago? Yeah, many, many moons ago. Yeah, many yeah, moons yeah. ago. Um, so just tell me, tell me a little about, about where you grew up and how you came to be involved in community organizing and, and some of the kind of your own experiences, different kinds of organizing. So I grew up in this housing project, uh, Sunnydale Housing Project, and then I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley in 1954. Oh, wow. wow. I was still the tail end of the McCarthy era here. Uh-huh. So we were the, the students were called the silent generation. And so I got involved in, my, my parents were left-wingers. All right. Your dad uh, worked for the post office, as I recall. Yeah, my dad worked for the post office a little while in the censorship bureau. He had an interesting, I remember you telling me the story, he had, an, he had quite a colorful past, as it turned out. Yes, he, he, had, he had connections at quite high levels of the international communist movement. Right. That, that I never, I could yeah. never get my family to talk about. Right, right. Uh, my dad died when I was uh, about 12 or 13, and I could never get my mom to talk about it. I tried, I mean, long after the McCarthy era was gone, and there was absolutely no reason to be quiet about this. She still had some remnant of that fear, I guess. Right, right, right. So you Berkeley. You're, you're, let's, get, let's get to Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, so Berkeley. I got involved in the university YMCA, which was not a typical YMCA. It was a kind of uh, deeply influenced by the Christian social action tradition. Right, right. So uh, we did stuff, uh, very quiet uh, stuff against housing discrimination. We did stuff on civil liberties. And I think the second semester, a Quaker guy came onto the staff by the name of Cecil Thomas. So I got involved in some nonviolent peace peace stuff. Um, It was the first time I, I met Christians who took their faith and applied it to the social world. Right. Was, was Sheldon Wolin's teaching? Yeah, I took, I took uh, political theory with Sheldon Wolin, and uh, he was a terrific, terrific prof. Absolutely right. terrific prof. A big influence. I mean, his, his understanding of democracy, a big influence for me. So through involvement in YMCA and, and then your leadership in student politics as part of Slate, you became involved in uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Is that right? Yeah, there's an in-between step. I got a Woodrow Wilson to Columbia, and uh, I hated the sociology department there. It was all quantitative analysis. So I, I didn't do I, – I, I, I quit, basically. And a friend of mine there, coincidentally, her co-worker, 
was getting married and she told him about this job being a public housing tenant organizer on New York's Lower East Side. I thought, God, this, this is, this, this is a job for me. <laughs> so I went, I got interviewed by this guy, Jose Villegas. And at the interview, at the end of the interview, he said to me, can you start tomorrow? And I thought, he, I thought he was kidding. And I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'll see you at 10. So, <laughs> Uh, so I, I skipped my exams. I took incompletes and I started organizing in, I think there were eight 16-story uh, buildings in the LaGuardia housing project. And we had, they had an action one day where the tenants were picketing uh, a little street that ran through the project. It was, it was a dangerous for kids and they wanted this street closed. And so I told Jose I was going to pick it with the tenant. He said, "No, you you can't you can't do that. You're you're not. Uh, that's not part of your job." I said, "Wait a second. I'm organizing people, and they're going to do this thing, and I'm not going to be with them on the picket line." No, no, no. That that doesn't sound right. So anyway, I picketed. When my when my uh, temporary status on this job came to a close, I was not permanently hired. Right. <laughs> and I was called a little Alinsky. Oh, okay. And I said to I said, who is this guy, Alinsky? I'd, I'd, never, I'd never heard of Saul Alinsky. So, I, of course, I discovered Reveille for Radicals. Um, just what I'm thinking, my gosh, what, <laughs> I can't find in this huge city. I'm a little, I'm a kid. I can't find work in the field that I'd like to get into. So I get a call from Berkeley. Mike, we'd like you to come and direct the statewide anti-capital punishment campaign. So I had already concluded that that uh, whether a state had capital punishment or not was as good an indicator of its moral character as anything. And so that was something that appealed to me. So I came home. I, I got an apartment in uh, Berkeley and part-time I was in the Bay Area. Part-time I was in Los Angeles. And uh, we didn't have what it takes to, we had to, we had to get 500,000 signatures on a petition to put this idea on the ballot but we didn't have the we we failed at that so summer's now coming and slate has a, a slate summer conference i think it was the second one but it may have been the first it may have been the first and so i went to that and a guy named Hank Anderson is there Hank Anderson is the research director for the agriculture workers organizing committee which is an effort by the AFL-CIO to organize farm, farm workers in California. So Hank's leaving the campgrounds. I, where, where are you going? He says, I'm going to meet this guy, Saul Alinsky. He knows a lot about the Mexicans in California. I, oh, he said, you mind if I tag along? No, 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 come on. So we go. Uh, Alinsky's wife, Jean, lived in their summer place in Carmel because she, she, she was ill. Um, muscular dystrophy, maybe. I, I, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, she lived there year round. And Saul would regularly go there to, to spend time with her. So we arrive at the Carmel home and Hank introduces himself. And Alinsky had this gruff manner. He points to me. He says, what's that guy doing here? And Hank is taken aback. So I said, well, Mr. Olinsky, I was fired for being a little one, and I wanted to meet the big one. <laughs> well, that tickled his ego, as you probably well know. He had a pretty big ego. So I, I, he wanted to know my story. I told him. my, and, and So he regaled us with stories of his organizing in New York. All right. So there's Mike, there's so much we could uh, dig into in terms of what you've, you've been involved in, in terms of organizing. But just to say, you, you, so you go from involvement in student politics to involvement in Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC, uh, which, you know, is a story in itself. Um, and then overlapping with that, you become involved in efforts to develop organizing work in San Francisco being done by various church groups. Is that right? Presbyterians and the Episcopalians then sponsored an Alinsky 10-day workshop. I think the first one was in 65. So I went to that. And then there was a second one, the next. And this is doing kind of basic training by Alinsky in organizing. Well, I would not call it training. It, it teaches you to think, organi think in an organizing framework. 
right. rather than a policy framework or a moral, this is good, so it's going to happen framework. Begin with the world the way it is, look at self-interest, understand power relationships, understand what it means to build community. Those, it, it's most, it's conceptual, but he teaches in a highly participatory way. Uh, a lot of it's Socratic. Right. Um, becomes, I mean, it's what becomes later the kind of 10 day training and then it gets yes. taken up by the Institute and stuff. Yeah. But that Linsky's already doing this in the mid sixties, going around in different communities. And I training. don't know where else he did it. I don't know. I'm not too sure he did it too many places, but yes, he was, he was lecturing. He was, uh, uh, consulting at, uh, Syracuse university where, Warren Hagstrom had developed a, a program that wanted to use student fieldwork placements to organize in public housing projects. And he wanted, and Fred Ross became the fieldwork supervisor there. The next year, there's another 10 day. And at this one, a guy named Barry Bloom is an Episcopal priest, inner city Episcopal priest. He says, Saul, you're always complaining about not having enough organizers. You should start a training institute. Oh, right. So I don't know whether that was a prearranged uh, <laughs> comment. Saul certainly was not above doing that. But um, in either case, uh, after the break, Alinsky came back. He said, you guys raise a quarter of a million dollars here and uh, we'll have an institute, training institute for organizers in the Bay Area. We'll have one project in the black community in Oakland and the mission district will be the other project. So, um, the, we were a quartet, uh, David Knotts, Bill Grace, Jim Guinan and I were the core people trying to move the denominations and some foundations in the Bay area to come up with this, uh, quarter of a million. So in, 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 uh, in 66, it must have been. Yeah, 66, Alinsky is out in the Bay Area. He sometimes would fly into, he'd fly into San Francisco and then take a shuttle plane down to Monterey and to go to Carmel and see his wife. So he would sometimes have long layovers at the San Francisco airport. And he was a member of the United Airlines Traveler Club. So he had this, you know, have a nice lounge at the airport. So we're meeting with Alinsky, strategizing how to do the Institute. And Alinsky looks at me and he, with this way, he waves his fingers. Mike, he says, if you want to roll in the Institute, I need you in Kansas City, Missouri <laughs> in three weeks. <laughs> I got to take a piss. You, you think about it. And he gets up, goes off to the toilet. <laughs> and I, I say to Grace and the other guys, what am I going to do? I can't leave here in three weeks. I'm on the SNCC staff. I'm married. My wife has a job. Negotiate for time. They said, negotiate. Okay. So this is October, I think. So I said, Saul, I can't leave until around the end of the year. All right. He says, okay. So uh, mid-December, mid I went to Rochester, New York. My wife was okay with doing this. I went to Rochester to spend about six, eight days with Ed Chambers, right, right. who was supervising Kansas City while he was also doing the fight organization. In against, against Kodak in Rochester. Yeah. Uh -huh. So um, I went to New York from uh, Rochester to meet Alinsky, and we were going to fly into Kansas City together. On my way, I stopped off at a SNCC retreat that was taking place in the Catskills at um, uh, uh, one of the resorts up there that was owned by a black tap dancer by the name of Pegleg Bates. And I arrived the day they're voting on the question where they're they're, whether they're going to vote whites out of SNCC. Oh, right, right. You know, by then it was shrunk. SNCC is on a downhill spiral from which it never recovered. Um and they vote the whites out. Fannie Lou Hamer was there. Right. And she came up to me. She said, Mac. That's the way she said, Mike. Mac. She was in tears. She said, I just don't know what they're doing. So I, I would have been out of SNCC even had I not resigned. Right. right. <laughs> so was, I, Ella, was, was Ella Baker there at that time? Did you, did you ever I, meet Ella Baker? I did very briefly. I never really got to know her. 
I don't know if Ella Baker was, I tend to think not. Right. So I, I, I resumed on my drive to uh, New York City and uh, met Saul at the airport. We flew to Kansas City, Missouri, and I became, I, I replaced Squire Lance. And I was in over my head. Right. <laughs> um, I think that's kind of Alinsky's ways to throw people in the... Yeah, it was <laughs> sink or swim. Yeah. So by the end of my first year, I, I was having a headache every day, and they were really getting bad. So I, I knew this isn't going to work. So I flew home, landed, never had another headache. No more Darvon, no more headaches. It was clearly this job was... Stressful. <laughs> So I reconnected with the mission people. Right. They want by this time they wanted to hire me to work for what came to be called the Mission Coalition right. organization. So I wasn't sure whether this is my kind of work. Uh, so I said, "Well, I'll help you organize a founding convention, and we'll see how that goes. Goes okay, then we'll talk again. If not, no." But my condition for taking the job is this be a multi-issue organization, not just a model cities organization. No problem, Mike. We agree with that. So um, I took the job. We had a great founding convention, and that launched me. What I did the rest of my life, one way or another, I was connected with organizing. So what did you learn from Alinsky that you hadn't learned about organizing as part of SNCC? In, in SNCC, you know, we were, we were riding the wave of a movement. I mean, the the... The sit-ins spread like wildfire in in the South. Campuses all over the South, students became involved in sit-ins. And then they became involved in backing the Freedom Rides in 61. In Mississippi, Bob Moses met with a lot of local leaders, and they said, look, we, we love what the students are doing, but what we really want to do is win the right to vote. That's what's going to break the power of the Dixiecrats and their state and county equivalents, counterparts. So Bob was persuaded of that. And so the idea was to develop local voter registration organizations or drives. The conceptual framework was, was there for a participatory kind of democracy. Right. Um, but a lot of the specifics of, of planning, of house meetings, of larger meetings, of cultivating leadership, of developing collective leadership. None of that was, I thought, different from what SNCC people believed, but Olinsky knew how to do it. He knew actually how on the ground to do that. And so I, I, I as a matter of fact, hoped that I could bring the two together. And, and I got, a little bit later, I got uh, Stokely Carmichael and, and Olinsky talking with one another. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't go anyplace, but it was uh, it was my great hope that that Alinsky would somehow become a mentor to what's to, to SNCC people. And we can talk about why that didn't happen if you want. But so SNCC had the idea of building a grassroots movement, the way SNCC people talked about it. And actually, in Mississippi, as that unfolded, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had county committees. It sometimes had town voter leagues that were connected with it. And when they had their founding convention to create the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, these county committees sent delegates to a founding meeting. And so they, they were they were putting together an organization. They, yeah, yeah. they were doing this. I'd love to just have a little bit about turn to Alinsky, his own experience of organizing. Can you kind of um, paint, us, paint us a picture of the, the where he got his, what how he got started as an organizer? Not the kind of voice you, but like what, what the, what the back of yards was like. And yes, well, um, well, as you know, from uh, Upton Sinclair's book, um, The Jungle, this was a poverty-stricken area, right adjacent to the stockyards of the meatpacking industry, largely Eastern European ethnic and Irish and a small Mexican community. And they, they, the Eastern Europeans brought all their wars from Europe <laughs> to back of the yards with them. So you had these 
language perishes. The, the Polish parish, the Croatian parish, the whatever parish. And right about this time, the, it is in the mid-30s, the Packinghouse Workers Organizing Committee, which is uh, the entity that's trying to organize a, a union in the in these meatpacking plants, is trying to organize in, in the back-of-the-yard stockyards. And uh, Alinsky had earlier met John L. Lewis. Alinsky had, had as a student, graduate student at, at university in Chicago and immediately thereafter become involved with John L. Lewis and the industrial union organizing drive. So he was connected with what's going on in the back of the yards and where he got this idea. I don't know, but he had the idea that you could pull together the rival churches and civic associations and merchants and whatever else was organized in back of the yards. And if it wasn't organized, you'd help it form its own organization into a federation that would be both address the issues of where people lived and become an ally of the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee. So that's what he did. He met a, a Catholic recreation park director whose name you're going to have to help me with uh um i think his name was joe megan he was he was a an irish guy deeply rooted in the neighborhood highly respected by all these warring factions and um he had a i think a brother who was in the archdiocese so he had access to the auxiliary bishop shiel and the cardinal cardinal stritch so through the these two guys uh, Alinsky teamed up with this guy, and this guy legitimizes Alinsky in this community where he he might have gotten tarred and feathered if he'd gone in there as a yeah. Jewish agnostic. Yeah. <laughs> so they s start talking with the local leadership, and this idea emerges of bringing all these groups and and new groups together, and out of that comes the back of the yards council. Right. There, I mean, there'd been prior work sponsored by University of Chicago, the community, the CAP scheme, which had, there, which Alinsky had been involved in, in oh, yes, that's building right. an areas yeah, project, yeah. which was, but that was more social service. Alinsky's frustration with that was it was it was basically kind of humanitarian service provision. It wasn't actually building up a kind of democratic power base to challenge what was really creating the poverty, which is the terrible wages and terrible working conditions and, and kind of exploitation of the meatpacking. So it was, there, there, there was a kind of backdrop there to yeah, the Precisely. Yeah, exactly. So um, in the course of all that, he met Herb March. Herb March was a key uh, rank and file leader in the packing houses and was an open member of the Communist Party. So it, it became a very successful thing. The, the, uh, the union and the, the union became a member of Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council. Uh, March and, and Alinsky uh, struck up this relationship and, um, they, they won the, uh, they won union recognition, negotiated a contract. It's still remarkable that you've got, you've got this Catholic, kind of Catholic hierarchy and Catholic parishes, communist organizers, labor and other, you know, democratic socialist organizers. Alinsky, and we'll talk about what he is, but he's pulling together all of these elements, which in most other, and this is also still kind of deep concern, anti-communist concern in the Catholic Church, they're able to, he's able to forge this coalition, which is, it is a remarkable achievement. Yes. And I think what, what Alinsky, I remember him telling me, I can't remember whether this was in the context of a conversation about Italy where he later he 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 went there to meet with the bishop of Milan, but but Alinsky had a, a an argument that was unbeatable. He said because they they knew all their men, all the the men of the neighborhood were increasingly influenced by this communist guy, Herb March, uh, right, right. because it's the communists who are key and socialists as well. But but Herb March is a admired guy throughout the, the packing houses. He's a wonderful. I met him. I knew him. A wonderful guy. So Alinsky had a, a irrefutable argument. You want to continue losing your people? Right. Then sit on your butts and don't do anything. I'm offering you a 
a format, a, a, a structure in which the church is going to be an equal, but you're going to have to get engaged. So you choose. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with, right? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, his sophisticated use of self-interest. People doing the right, the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, enlightened self, yeah, talk billion enlightened self. He introduces the encyclicals of eighteen seventy six, or I think it was eighteen eighteen ninety three. Rerum novarum. Yeah, that's right, rerum novarum. So, of course, there's a whole. By then, there's a whole Catholic rationale for doing this kind of stuff. So Alinsky attributes, Alinsky said, yeah, they, they, they issued Rerum Novarum because the, the radicals were biting at their heels throughout Europe. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not completely untrue. There, you've got people like Cardinal Manning, who's a key figure in the yes, I, strike. Right. And then the, so that you've, that is, but that there is very much the church responding to growing Catholic involvement in labor movement and labor activism. So he's, He's drawing on on that, and that, yeah. I mean, it's an it's an interesting how I think I would say that someone like you know the Bishop Shields and the Archbishop view this as a realization of actually what is Catholic social teaching in a way in which some of their more kind of reactionary clergy might have been resistant to. Yeah, but Alinsky would say without this self interest dimension, those would have remained words on a piece of paper. Right. 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 That, fair, enough. <laughs> fair enough. And that's where his sophisticated use of self-interest understood at multiple levels, individual level, organizational level, uh, institutional level. I mean, he knew he 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 knew how to identify a legitimate self-interest that could have been expressed in a negative way or could be expressed in a positive way. And so he knew how to find a positive expression for self-interest, which he considered legitimate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just expand for me what you what you think he meant by self-interest. I mean, I've always understood it in a kind of Tocquevillian sense of how do I connect my interest to the kind of, not necessarily greater good, but a kind of broader shared form of life. It's not selfish interest. It's how how can well, I be? Yeah, the way the way I have put that in the workshops that I that I lead, selfishness is interest in self to the exclusion of others. Right. Self interest is interest of self in relation with others, and selflessness is interest in others to the exclusion of self. All right. Very nice. Can you say, like, what's the relative in terms of how he learns organizing and the impact and the and, and actually what it takes to do this kind of work? What's the what what's he learning from the labor movement and from John L. Lewis and that kind of organization? What's he learning from people like Herb Marsh? How's that informing how's that informing how he goes about organizing? Well, I I would say that his principal mentor was John L. Lewis. Right. And I would say, I mean, I don't know enough of the detail of March to, to know how closely Alinsky was observing what March was actually doing day by day. But it, I'm, I suspect in their conversations that March was giving him the nuts and bolts of actually putting power together on a factory floor. <clears throat> which is what March did. And what March represented, this is a bit of a digression, but I think it's an important one. There were a lot of communists who were also what I would consider small D Democrats. And they, the communist party was the going thing if you were a radical. So they were in the communist party. But when party dictates from on high would be sought to be imposed upon them, they would resist. And that ultimately is what led March to break from the Communist Party. They, he broke from them over an internal election in the Packinghouse Workers Union. So he's influenced by, he obviously works closely in the labor movement with John L. Lewis, kind of does the back of yards. I mean, I, I understand in his, he sees what of his part of work he's doing there is anti-fascist organizing. And he's, he's very committed to kind of anti-totalitarian very for democracy, but 
in, in his lifetime, he's often asked what his ideology was. What do you, how do you think he understood his political philosophy, if you can put it in those terms? Yeah, I, I, I think his way of talking about it was weak. I think, I mean, the way I, I say to people, I do two things. Number one, people say, well, what's your ideology, Mike? I say, well, what do you mean by the word ideology? Well, that sends them in a little spiral because a whole lot of people who use that word don't know what the hell they mean by it. But secondly, I say, well, uh, my, my ideology is a radical understanding of democracy and, and, and an understanding of the necessity of people power organizations to realize it. Powerless people cannot be democratic people. So what's your critique of that? Well, are you a socialist? And I say, well, no, but I'm not a capitalist either. So they, I said, I, I, I reduce socialism to policy proposals. Should we nationalize this enterprise or should we make it municipally owned? Or those are all legitimate proposals which democratic people can consider. I sure don't want to socialize my neighborhood shopping strip with all these creative small business people who have wonderful restaurants and bakeries and uh, flower shops and you name it. I don't think central planning, I know, sure couldn't come up with that. So it opens a conversation. So I don't feel defensive on this question of ideology. So what Alinsky ended up doing was dismissing ideology. He, He implied and I think may even have said that ideology is of necessity rigid. And I don't think that's so. Uh, Why is it rigid? You have have core values. You have an understanding of self-interest and power and the relationship of mass organization to existing power structures of either government or, or, or capital. Um, What's what's what do I need to add to that? Right. What do you? I mean, what do you see as the role of political ideas and theories in organising more generally? How do you? What what role? Do, so, I mean, there's this core commitment to democracy, and we might say a certain kind of realism and pragmatism about how one goes around building power. But there is this place. I think is one of the things. There is an important place for broader frameworks of interpretation, broader theories, political ideas. How, how do you see that relationship? Well, I, I, I think it's important that there be, I mean, you earlier, you mentioned Sheldon Wolin, um, having theorists who can elaborate a meaning of democracy that is related to the participation of people, rather than what I contrasted with elite democracy, in this country, the principal understanding of democracy is that you vote every two years um, or maybe every year if you participate in the lo- local elections. But there's a nervousness about deeper involvement. There's a suspicion of, of everyday people as being susceptible to demagoguery. Which, of course, if they have no mechanisms for for participation, then indeed they are susceptible to demo, demagoguery. So the cure for the ills of democracy is more democracy, not less. Yeah. So what so what do you think? What do you see as the heart of Valinsky's vision of democracy? Just expanding on that. Do you think? I mean, my sense is that there's a, a key element of his vision is the sense that the at the heart of democracy is that ordinary people should have some say and agency in determining. Oh, oh absolutely. And that's where organization comes in. Right. In, in organization, you learn to be a citizen. You learn to negotiate. You learn to make compromises with others. You learn how to frame interests into policies. All, all the things that have to do with governance are learned by participating in voluntary associations that shape public policy. Right. So you've got you've people or everyone ha- is is kind of involved in shaping the shared form of life yes. rather than acted upon and simply receiving passively what kind of elites or technocrats or whoever um kind of determine. Right. Now, what differed him so you have elite democracy, that's another understanding of democracy. 
then you have what I call strong government democracy. Strong government democracy says, well, we'll build governmental institutions as buffers against the power of wealth. Right. Um, but it doesn't work. They get corrupted. The wealth infiltrates. So the problem of the new deal, that's an, that's fundamentally the problem of the new deal. It could not overcome. It could not successfully break up corporate power. It managed it. It regulated it, but it, and, and, and then when, when the tide of the economy changed, corporate power was able to reassert itself in the seventies. Right. So you got that kind of state centric approach or a kind of plutocratic, um, yeah. And, and then participatory democracy is the kind of counter to both of those. That's right. But do you think, do you think Alinsky saw himself as part of a kind of American tradition of democracy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, I mean, his last big project was proxies for people. He had a national strategy for organizing the middle class uh, to, to uh, take on the corporate, corporate power in America. It, it never got off the ground, but, yeah. and then but, it got. But, but more, more in terms of kind of how it going back, I've mentioned to, to Tocqueville already, but like what, who would be figures in, in kind of American understandings or embodiments of democracy that he would see himself as in continuity with? Well, I, I, I think he saw himself in the populist tradition. I think he saw himself in, in the CIO tradition. I, I suppose the populist pre, the pre-racist populists, the radicals of the revolution, the, the American revolution, the radicals of the American revolution, the pre-racist populists and the radicals of the CIO would be the three major points of American history with which he would identify himself. CIO is the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Yeah, the Industrial Union Movement. Set up, set up by John L. Lewis. Just thinking about the kind of, think about the kind of means end stuff. On the one hand, Alinsky's is often accused um, of advoca- uh, advocating a kind of ends justifies the means approach. And I think there's definitely a, a strongly pragmatic and realistic strand to to his. And he obviously has his posturing as being a kind of Machiavelli for the people or his um, infamous thing about Satan and, and what, at the beginning of one of his things <laughs> rules, uh, which caused many problems since. But, I, but I'm also, I read, I was reading through some, some of the archive stuff and He's got this wonderful uh, eulogy by Monsignor Jack Egan uh, from his funeral, and and Egan kind of opens it by saying he imagines Alinsky facing the Lord, and and Egan has God saying to Alinsky, "You saw me despised, and you treated me with dignity. You saw me powerless to secure a job and decent housing, and you helped me organise with my brothers and sisters to secure my rights as a human being and as a citizen. You saw me still enslaved, and you lifted up my eyes to freedom and self determination." You saw me being pushed around, and you cared constantly. Can you can you just kind of open out for uh, say something about how Linsky viewed the relationship between means and ends, and and but in relation to that, how he I think the extent to which he sees democracy inherently to be committed to democracy is inherently to be committed to a moral endeavor that that values the agency of of the poor and the marginalized. Yeah, that's right. He, he says. He's very explicit about this. Number one, he says, I would never organize a community to more effectively be racist because it contradicts a core value. If you have, if you don't have core values, you have no anchor. You have no, no, no mooring in a, in, 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 uh, in, in a, the human community. In anything, anything goes. Now, his formulation was, does this specific end justify these specific means? So just turning to the to the books, how do you see then the relationship between Reveille for radicals and rules for radicals? I mean, the, the, you read the first one pretty close to when it came out. Um, and then I guess you subsequently read, read rules for radicals. Yeah. Uh, well, I think Reveille, um, Reveille is a more visionary, passionate book. Right. And, um, and it has sto- and stories. Um, and, and he, he says these things about w- the requirements for a democratic society. They're quite explicit in Reveille. Mm. I, I don't know why people don't 
I don't know. I think sometimes people just don't want to read it or they don't want to absorb it because it contradicts their pre-judged view of Alinsky. It baffles me. It, it really baffles me. In in rules, he's reacting to, in a sense, his own personal inability to convince the student movement to abandon the craziness that it is embarked upon. Right. And so he's trying to be a, a, a moderating, look, you guys, you got to start with the world the way it is. Hmm. You can speculate all about your participatory democracy, utopias, and so on. But if you don't start with the world the way it is and with people the way they are, you are not going to get to where you want them to be and the world to be. And this is how you need to understand how to do that, how to move from where we are to where we want to be, not just on manifestos, but in actual reality on the ground. Right. I think that's what he hoped Rules was going to do. So he, so you've, you've got these two books, Rules for Radicals, Rave Radicals. They have a kind of afterlife. In terms of the practice, you've got a whole bunch of figures who come in. Um, so you, you've got figures like, you know, mentioned Fred Ross, Tom Gaudet, Nicholas von Hoffmann, Richard Harmon. What are there some of the contributions they bring to the practice of organizing? Well, Fred Ross, senior, I don't think he ever quite grasped what Alinsky was talking about in organizations of organizations. In the organizations of organizations that Alinsky organized, there was a revolution that took place within it. So, for example, you, Bishop Fury, uh, he was a bishop in Texas, maybe Fort Worth, and he was, uh, no, maybe it was uh, uh, San Antonio. So when when a pastor at one of the local cops, Communities Organized for Progress and Services, which is an IAF organization, so pastor is transferred or dies or whatever, and so uh, the bishop is considering a replacement. All of a sudden, a delegation says, we want a voice in who our replacement pastor is going to be. So Fiore says, with a twinkle in his eyes, so you know he, he was kind of kidding, he said, had I known they were going to apply these principles to me, I'm not sure that I would have supported Saul in the first place. <laughs> so what what people learn about being democratic citizens, they take into other arenas. So uh, the churches that participate in these organizations themselves become more internally democratic, even if the form remains the same. I mean, you don't elect your pastor, but if you have a say with the uh, council, with the bishop and who gets assigned, you're, <laughs> that's a big difference than from what used to be. So, or the te the, te the technical ecclesial term for that is synodality, which is, uh, is, is <laughs> it actually should be it should be part of the process. The, the, oh, often, <laughs> okay. often it's it's not. So that I mean, oh. Pope Francis has instituted this whole process of synodality, but it is all about the laity having active agency in is it's the it's the people of God. So how do you constitute a people? It's through them having agency in the formation of the church. Um, so that this is this is a key, but I yeah, so I would say what Linsky is doing there is actually helping the church rediscover what it means to be church. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So, but but what Fred understood as an organization of organizations was <clears throat> the leaders of a whole bunch of organizations would get together in an organization. He had a bad experience with that, and so he decided, no, I'm not going to do that. So when Alinsky hired him, I think in '46 in East Los Angeles which was a largely Mexican-American community, Fred wanted to do a direct membership organization where individuals and families directly join. And what they join is a chapter in what becomes a statewide organization. ACORN, ACORN was the more modern version of that. And ACORN is directly an heir. Uh, Bill Pastreich, who had a big influence on Wade Rathke, was one of Ross's trainees in Syracuse. So there's a direct line from CSO to ACORN. And and Wade Rathke is very knowledgeable of, of Fred Ross and uh, what he did. So that is, and, and people make a view these as, as mutually exclusive. I don't think they are. Right. In, in 
Ross also said, you can't do an organization of organizations here because the bishops are too conservative. They won't allow their parishes to get into something like what Chicago is. You had that also. <clears throat> so that's Ross. And, and Gaudette in Chicago ha had a big focus on block clubs. They would start, they, I guess in Chicago, there was somewhat of a tradition of block clubs. And, and, and Gaudette thought they were an important form along with the parish and that they were really a good vehicle through which to do local, local action. And that was Gaudette. So when, when John Bauman and Jerry Helfridge came out here to Oakland, they had learned organizing from Gaudette in Chicago. And they started a thing called Oakland Community Organization. Their focus was on parishes. They, were, they, they, they couldn't break into the Black Baptist world, which is an unfortunate long story in itself. But And block clubs. They organized a lot of block clubs. Right, right. And that's so, now... That's now that became Pico and is now Faith in Faith in Action. Yes, uh huh. And that and 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 Gaudette trained Shell Trap, so National People's Action, which was Trap and 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 Gail Sincata, um, they also had an emphasis on block clubs. Then uh, Harmon Harmon, I think, is the most imaginative. He's he's the most visionary of the early crew. Uh, very in, very interested in co-ops. And he wasn't, he said, everybody has an ideology. What is this? No ideologies. Everybody has an ideology. That's a quote from Armin. I never got close to anything he did on the ground. I wish I had, but I love reading his stuff uh, and stuff. And, and Chambers was, uh, Ed Chambers, is, I think, is the, the great structural engineer of, of Olinsky tradition organizing. I mean, he created a network, uh, largely his doing, I think, that pulled together. Uh, by that by that time, you know, I have had a big internal evaluation in the early eighties, maybe uh, maybe nineteen eighty itself, on why things like Citizens Action Program in Chicago were like water in the palm of your hand. You open it a little bit, and it's all gone. So they made this shift in emphasis to the institutional church as the base for mass organizations. Uh, Chambers shepherded that. Arnie told me, Ar Arnie Graf said to me once, well, with Ed, we had another organizer, not an executive director. So I'm, I'm not sure what he meant by that. But anyway, there, there's a network. IF is a very successful network. Mm -hmm. I think I think he, he meant because we actually talked about it yesterday. He he for him the executive director is you're in charge of an organization and the organization is kind of under you. If you're an organizer, you serve the people and you serve the organization rather than and then it's the it's the it's the members and leaders who do the work rather yes. than the other way around. So I think that's how he understands it. I mean, we literally just kind of talked it through. Well, see, and that's the, that, that distinction became a huge internal fight in SNCC. Bob Moses, Bob Moses would agree with exactly with that formulation. And, and the word that was used by some people was you accompany the people. And Jim Foreman saw leadership exercise from the top. It wasn't anti-democratic. He believed there should be active participation by the people involved, but that SNCC should be the top organization. And it would convene all these groups that it created throughout the South. So that distinction is the Moses Foreman internal debate. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it is. Like, is, is, is the role of the organizer to serve and facilitate, train in a kind of popular education mode the leaders and the whether it's block clubs institutions like churches other civil society groups or is it essentially a kind of campaigning arm which you then recruit people to and they're in the service of whatever the the kind of broader campaigns are into this context what what would you say some of the key lessons from Malinsky you think really need to be kind of pressed home today or relearned today Power precedes program. See, if you if you have a little organization of uh, thirty people, 
and and you win and you establish a co-op a grocery store, it'll totally absorb your organization. If you're an organization of a thousand, maybe you can start a co-op grocery store and it won't absorb, it, it won't derail you from this other purpose of changing the world in the direction of the world as it should be, rather than building little enclaves of, of sanity. Right. That's a good good note to good note to end on, Mike. Thank you so much for it's very very rich and uh, wide ranging and you know <laughs> one, wonderful uh, wonderful stories of, of extraordinary kind of moments in in part, the history of participatory democracy in the past kind of few decades. So thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. Good seeing you. And come west. I will give you another bone of my San Francisco tours. <laughs> I look forward to it. for joining me for this episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, in which I explore the foundational influence Saul Alinsky had on community organizing and his vision of democratic politics. This podcast is sponsored by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. As with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to the episode from the website. That's www.ormancenter.com backslash listen dash organize dash act dash podcast. Do sign up at the website for news about events and resources related to the podcast or to send me questions. For now, let me say goodbye. And I hope you join me next time for a discussion of Ella Baker and her influential approach to democratic organizing. (laughs) 